Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome. This is Cindy Meyer, your host and the publisher of Spirit Seeker Magazine, which makes this show possible. Spirit Seeker has been published uh, online since 1998, but it actually started 22 years ago. And we um, <clears throat> started off as a quarterly newsletter, and then Spirit gave me the assignment in 1997 while meditating in Sedona to uh, take it to a monthly publication, or actually um, bi-monthly at that time, just six times a year. And then, and that's how it started in 1997, went from the quarterly newsletter to the six-time-a-year um, publication, and then in 2002... The assignment came, it has to be monthly because there's uh, so much happening and people need to know about it. So that is how Spirit Seeker came to be, and you can read the magazine each and every month at spiritseeker.com. I also invite you to join our email list because if you are on the email list, you will know about the weekly guests on the radio show, you will know about fabulous mind body spirit events happening all over the u.s and into canada and sometimes we uh, actually cover uh, other global events so you will know what's going on you'll have your finger on the pulse of people on the front lines of truly truly doing the work and um, with the intention of making the world a better place uh, for all of us to live in so that's that and if you uh, would send an email to info at spiritseeker.com asking to be added to the email list then you will be eligible for the drawings we do regular drawings for books dvds cds tickets to events throughout um whenever we have events we you know we share the tickets etc so uh do join our email list and also the minute the show is finished it is then an archived podcast we know you're listening because i get the stats on uh the after hour listens and we really appreciate you letting others know about this show and the magazine Okay. All right. So that's it. And then you can read about, you'll see things on spiritseeker.com, but you can also go to cindymeyer.com, which is C-Y-N-D-E-M-E-Y-E-R.com, and you can find out all the different services that I offer. Okay. So now, without further ado, I'm going to uh, introduce you to my guest, and then I will bring her live on the air. Dr. Saida Desilei wants to live in a world filled with audacious, sexually sovereign women living life on their own terms. As a thought leader and body philosopher, she has published several books, The Emergence of the Sensual Woman, The Illustrious Jade Egg, and had her innovative method featured in works by Dr. Christiane Northrup and Dr. Rachel Abrams uh, in their books. And after two decades of dedicated embodied professional practice, Saida is known as the visionary spokesperson for the, for the sexual sovereignty movement. She has created seven online courses to assist women to successfully embody their sensuality while enhancing their sexual health. Saida launched launched her year-long ambassador program for professional women who wish to bring her psychosexual method into their line of work. These ambassadors are part of a creative, collaborative, global collective who are dedicated to the highest standard of information and education for women of all walks of life. Seeing the need to counter the detrimental effects of apathy, she created the Daring Project, a growing online membership of women from around the world for women who are curious about exploring what it means to claim themselves and to be the focus of nature uh, they were born to be. I'm sorry, and to and be the force of nature they were born to be. The dynamic 
um, platform uh, provided by this is assisting women to audaciously move from being a victim to confidently thriving in life. Um, you can learn more about her at www.saida, capital dot com. And I'm going to repeat that, www.saidadesolet.com, which is S-A-I-D-A-D-E-S-E-L-E-T-S.com. And as you can see, this is a perfect time to bring this guest um, onto the show because she has her pulse on a lot of what's going on in the world. So, um, Dr. Saida, welcome so much to the call. It is so great to be here with you today, and it's a special day, so I'm very excited. It's like the eve of Chinese New Year's, and it's a new moon, and we're going to have a lot of fun in this conversation. <laughs> well, I know. I know. It's newness on all level, and it's like every day you're like, how can how can the world be changing this quickly? What now? But, you know, it's, it's fabulous times, and, you know, um, I'm glad you know new moon astrology because, you know, people are saying, why is it so different in 2018? And, you know, it's just wide open this year in so many ways. So, oh, my goodness. So whatever, wherever you want to start, I, I know, um, you know, you've had your own personal journey uh, with with learning how to reclaim your, um, your own self, and that is, um, you know, helping others. But perhaps, you know, wherever you want to start, even if you want to start even before that, just, you know, what was your life like? I know uh, you're from Canada, and you... Um, grew up in an agrarian society, and, you know, you were very independent. And um, so whatever you want to share, let's just start, and then I'll jump it's in every once in a while. Okay. Yeah, uh, absolutely. It's, it's a pleasure to be here. I think it's it's sweet to share uh, for everyone, actually, that bet- they say between the ages of, like, when you're very young, tell about your five years old, like the behaviors you're doing around five will be indicative of what you do as your uh, life's past. And what's funny about that is that at the age of five, I had discovered a very special spot on my body, and I was incredibly insistent <laughs> to share it with all my little friends, my girlfriends, uh, the other five-year-olds. And I got in a lot of trouble for doing that, but, but the reason I'm sharing that now is that there's always been this love of the body, love of pleasure, a shameless relationship with the body, and a desire to in a very generous and open-hearted way, in a very innocent way, actually, to share that curiosity with others. And, and it's funny that now, you know, many years later, that's what I ended up doing as a career. But it did start when I was five. <laughs> wow. Well, and, you know, even in utero, they, they have taken pictures. Of course, you can't see it so much with a woman, but you can see a little boy, you know, with their equipment, and you can see their penis aroused. And it's like, you know, that's even before they are on the planet you know, and, you know, it's it's a natural expression. Absolutely. And actually, they've, they've now done ultrasounds to demonstrate both uh, boys and girls uh, in a form of what they would call masturbation, but I, I, it's not, you know, advanced or anything. It's just, and so if you look at it through a different kind of lens, if we were to, to reframe that into, like, sexuality being our aliveness and the things that help us thrive and grow and be optimal in our living, that a fetus would have that kind of inherent intelligence to create pleasure in their bodies to allow the cellular growth to be, you know, more successful, et cetera, et cetera. I find that really intriguing. I just find that uh, very fascinating. 
You know, it is interesting. Pediatricians see babies after babies after babies. You know, I mean, it's it's a pretty pretty active um, practice, shall we say. And I can remember taking my youngest son in when he was, I don't know, you know, you have to take him in when he's very little. But I remember at the two-month visit, her saying, your child is engaging me. I said, okay, and? I mean, I already knew he did it. And she goes, that's very unusual. Two-month-olds do not normally engage with people. And she said, and look at how he's self-comforting. He was a very tactile child. He had this blanket with a, a silk edge, and he would rub that blanket between his fingers and just feel it, and it would soothe him. And she said, children that learn to soothe themselves at this level normally are pretty happy for the rest of their lives. It's almost like they they know how to calm, and, and she didn't use the word pleasure, but you could see that it just it brought him great comfort just to touch that tactile blanket. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I, so I want to say as a, a jump in, you know, yesterday was Valentine's, and just this jump into having a conversation that I believe is really important to have. And so there's, there is a call for us to reclaim not only the sexual side of our lives, but the sensual side of our lives. And so I want to just add to what you shared because that's so beautiful. And that sensuality is how we make sense of reality. And so we are innately sensual from birth, and we need to continue to harness that sensuality throughout life. And the the odd thing that we tend to do is, we numb out. We turn it off. We think that it will make us safer somehow. But numbing out and turning off our sensuality actually makes us more disconnected from what's happening around us. So our sensuality actually can end up informing us in, in powerful ways, not only um, how to keep us safe, which is absolutely true, but also how to rejuvenate our spirit, our heart, our body through allowing the, the senses that are being stimulated to actually feed us, feed our soul, feed, feed our bodies. I totally agree. And, um, you know, I, the United States is a young country, you know, and we still just have so many puritanical things that came across that with the, I don't even want to, I don't even know how to go into it. So I, and I probably don't want to go there. So let's instead, Instead, talk about how <laughs> how your personal journey with reclamation started, and um, you've already mm-hmm. shared like you were very young to be that precociously aware, and um, and you know, so so for you as a child, you know, here you are getting in trouble. I bet you were. I mean, you know, and you hear about brothers and sisters playing doctor or nurse and all that, but here you are with these little girls saying, "Look, look." And and so where did it go from there? This this awakening knowledge. It's almost like you had secret knowledge at a very young age. Yeah, I I, I feel really actually is the gift that my parents gave me because they they were brought up with very strong religious influence, being French Canadian at that time. The church had a very strong influence in in their lives, so they didn't want to bring shame into the lives of their children. So they were very clear. So they created an environment where it was safe for me to just be natural with my body. And they taught me boundaries, which served me very, very well in, in my life. Um, so from there, what happened was I was witness to a lot of atrocity because I grew up on native reservations. And it's at time a very painful place. And some of the ones that we were on were probably the most, um, they're, they're usually labeled like the most difficult ones. And so there was a lot of issues happening there. And I was witness to a lot of it. Our house was a shelter 
for women, especially who were experiencing domestic and sexual abuse at home. Um, so I got to speak with those women and see them and ask them questions. And yeah, I was very young. And, and yet I was having these radical and deep conversations. But I think my biggest uh, aha wake-up moment was going from, because my home life was very safe and, and very good, so I was witness to atrocity, but I didn't experience it personally until I was 20. And that's when um, I had a rape experience that led to me being told by my surgeon that I had two weeks to live from, you know, post that experience. And that was the moment where I think when you're young, you don't know your mortality. And so it was a very intense moment because, first of all, the, the, the trauma happened, which, you know, for me, in the experience of trauma, and I'm sure it's true for many people who've had trauma, it's, you don't know what to do with it. It's stunning. It's shocking. You go into a state of almost disembodied relocation because it's so weird and you can't quite configure what's happening. So take that moment and then fast forward into having to be rushed into an emergency surgery and then waking from that and being told, well, you've got two weeks to live. So the intensity of that for a young woman um, who'd really never had any issues prior to that was a wake-up call. I can't even imagine. You know, and I'm a former nurse, and I've seen a lot, but I can't even believe that that doctor even said that to you. I mean, most doctors avoid talking about death. They avoid, they they don't even, I mean, it's like uh, astonishing that he even said that to you. I mean, I can't even imagine. Right? So I think because I had PID from what had happened, which is pelvic inflammatory disease, if you don't know what PID initials are. I do. And it, it, it can be lethal if it's, you know, if it gets out of hand, and it was out of hand. It, it was, they just weren't confident that uh, antibiotics and whatever else they were going to put in my body would do it at the stage that it was at. So I was faced with a very strong choice. And this is what I want to talk about, that moment when we are faced with something very powerful like this. What are we going to choose? And for me, I was told I was going to die. So what is the most obvious choice? For most of us, we'd probably believe our doctor. But thankfully, I had a very strong rebel streak. (laughs) So I actually chose life. I didn't know how it was going to happen. It seemed medically impossible, but I really chose it with every fiber of my being. And that propelled me on a very epic journey. First of all, I had to defy my doctor I was in a religious hospital, so I had to defy the judgments of being um, a whore because I was there dying of a, a sexually transmitted infection. And I had to also defy my own self because I, I wasn't very educated. I didn't know what to do. It wasn't obvious. There's no, like, handbook, like, what to do post this trauma. <laughs> you know? Right, right. Um, and so I was really left to the veracity of my desire to live and then to allow that to inform me. So that journey that I went on was very organic, very profound. And on that journey, I discovered many things. And of those many things, I had a full reclamation of my body and my pleasure. Uh, I stabilized, obviously, my life because I was given two weeks and that's over two decades ago. So that's fabulous. (laughs) Right. And, yes. 
and, you know, I'm happily married and I have good relations with men. So it's, you know, there's been a full reclamation. And, and what's the beauty of it? And here's what's very important to me. When we have trauma, we do have the invitation to transform that great wound into a place of power. And so here I was facing death. I went through the process. And what did I do with it? I chose to offer it to other women if it could help them just reclaim their life even a little bit. It would have been worth all the intensity that I went through. And that's what I devoted my life to. Once it became clear that women were responding and really wanted to learn and really wanted to know what had actually worked in a way that wasn't surgery and wasn't, um, you know, drugs, but it was like a self-care type of routine, they were very curious. And so that's what I dedicated the rest of my life to is developing a very strong method. And that particular method now is being actually used in female medicine. So it's, it's evolved so much. It's pretty amazing. I feel very blessed. Well, and how fabulous that you had the family that you incarnated into that supported you, like totally got as this little girl. I mean, a lot of parents would have shielded you from hearing those other women and their stories, and instead you were right there. And, and yep. instead of being traumatized, you were curious and you listened and you learned. Yep. I mean, and that you, you model as a parent, right? Right. Oh, your parents are your first teachers, but let me tell you something. Your children teach you every bit as much as you teach them in my, in my experience with life. And so here you are, this innocent, wide-eyed child, you know, learning about the world through these women. It's almost like, you know, that book, The Red Tent, where the women came when they were on their moon, and there they yes. were, and they didn't have to work, and they didn't have to do all this other stuff, and they got this time finally to not be always working and to actually connect with one another. And that's where the deeper secrets of, of life came for many women back in that time. And, you know, so so how fabulous that um, this became your work. I mean, I'm sorry about the trauma. I mean, that there's no way around, you know, but these things happen, and I, I like your approach to they happen, but then what do you do with it? Exactly. So what I started to realize, because I, they say one out of three women will be abused in their lifetime, and I don't know if it's just who I attract or the, you know, the, the communities I go into, but it's more like nine out of ten in the world that I'm walking through. And and I don't know if one out of three is just because that's who we actually have reported on paper and the rest of the people stay silent so we don't know. But what I started to realize is, wow, we actually live in a world that traumatizes one another. And if that's the truth, if that's actually a common human experience, then how do we recontextualize this trauma so that it doesn't become the sole source of our identity and can actually become something that empowers us to really choosing to live our life in the way that we would love. And so that's been the inquiry of this work and the invitation to anybody who's actually curious and leaning in to find out a little bit more perhaps about you know, their own journey and, and that perhaps there's a, a deep gift that can still emerge. Because I, I really feel in the woundology culture, we only take people from the incident to survivor of something. But that's a half 
cooked experience. The other half, which is the thrival piece, it's the one where we awaken the gifts. We don't culturally, we're not that aware of that. And so that's been also my life's work is not only to celebrate women stabilizing and coming to a place where they're good in their bodies, minds, and hearts, but then what? And having even a deeper leaning into what, uh, you know, what gifts have yet to be sung in their own lives and letting those gifts have center stage. I can't agree with you more. I mean, that's the that's the piece I think that's been missing. And you know, all of a sudden—not all of a sudden, but but it seems all of a sudden—you know, the the millions of women marching on every continent, first time ever in the history of our of our world, that women in every you know on every single continent marched with 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 children and men and priests and nuns and every 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 faith denomination, every culture marched with these women all over the world and then the me too you know thing over 12 million women in 24 hours saying me too and you know mm-hmm. so what what do you feel right now uh Saida, with everything going on what do you feel the the greatest challenge for women right now is and what do you think about these women collectively standing up mm. two fabulous questions Let's first address what I think is happening right now because I think it's very important. Collectively, as a humanity, let's look at this as a human issue. I believe that we've come to a place in many areas of life where there's whistleblowers, where there's we, enough is enough. We, we, we're not interested in the abuse of children anymore. We're not interested in slavery. We're not, there's all these places where human beings have been commoditized and dehumanized and people are over it and so we'll see it more and more as people gain when we collectively stand together we are so powerful and I think people are starting to see that and they're starting to act that way it's partly a gift of social media you know that connects us all so we can see and then the other piece of that in in the same breath I want to say that collectively we are at a new evolutionary moment where both sexually and emotionally we're actually being asked to mature. So we're in a maturity process and part of maturing is to admit what hasn't been working. (laughs) That's part of the maturity process is to look and go, oh, you know, hitting a kid on the head and stealing his toy doesn't work anymore. It doesn't make me like that, that popular with other kids, you know, that we mature into a more sociable child. And in that, those questionings of our behaviors, it always comes with a maturity process. And I think globally, we are all facing this reality of perhaps this isn't how we want to interact with one another sexually as sexual beings. And what would that look like? There are not a lot of models, so I want to discuss that in a moment. And your second question, if you can remind me, um, so I can ask, answer that. With the millions, well, you kind of already alluded to it. With the, you know, we had millions of, of uh, yeah. women with the march, and then we had millions of women with the Me Too, and then we had, you know, the global global awards with, you know, Time's Up. You know, we've had all these yeah. interesting um, yeah. events that women banding together and standing up. Yeah, and so, you know what's amazing? It is women standing up, but there were also men that came forward with the hashtag MeToo. And and so what I want to say here collectively is um, it's 
it's a beautiful reclamation of voice because when trauma happens, there's a disassociation. How do we speak about it? And then we're in a society that's not even comfortable talking about healthy sexuality, never mind traumatic sexuality. So now a stage has been set, a precedent has been set where it's like, well, you might be uncomfortable, but I'm still going to share my story. It's important for me to have the story shared. And I think that that's very powerful. It's not just for women. It's for men and women, children, anybody who has a story. It's good to find that voice. That's the first step in healing. And then the second step is to ask for accountability, which has been happening. So that's very exciting. That also will force us to look at collectively as a culture, we agreed to the conditions that created the silence in the first place. So collectively, we get to look at, wow, so now what do we want? We don't want the silence, and we don't want people to get away with things that aren't appropriate, obviously. But what do we want? And that's what I think is very special about this emergence of the voice in all of these different movements. I think you're spot on, and I think um, statistic-wise, you know, I, I think we have absolutely no idea of the true numbers um, because for so long, you know, when women do tell their story, they're um, similar to what your experience was. You're labeled. You're shamed. What were you drinking? What were you wearing? All of the um, stereotypical responses of people who feel uncomfortable with women and their sexuality, and there's always this blame, yeah. well, you were asking for it, et cetera. And it's just really – so I like how you said we have to look how we have collectively created this and why were we silent yeah. about this. Yes. And where do, where do we go from here? Exactly, which is why I'm so excited to be here today because I want to mention something that is very dear to my heart, and it's this idea of sexual sovereignty. And this idea first came to me through observing tens of thousands. I mean, I don't really know how many women at this point have been through my programs and that I've been witness to, but it's a lot, a lot, a lot of women. And although their journeys are all incredibly unique, there was something that was common between all of them. And that's what I started to see was like, wow, this is not just about a better orgasm or healing the pelvic floor or dealing with incontinence or post-birth trauma or whatever it was. This is also about a homecoming. This is about a woman in really embracing the fullness of who she was. And I said, wow, she's stepping into sovereignty, sexual sovereignty, and the responsibility that comes with that. And it got me very excited because what that means is when we claim this, that no one outside of you has any right to ever tell you what to do with your fertility and your pleasure and your sexuality and your body, etc. It's like a private, personal, sovereign choice. And with that comes the responsibility to like, okay, so then what are my boundaries? What is important to me? What matters to me? And then taking a stand for that. So I find that very exciting because it's breaking a culture of victimhood and inviting everyone to go, wait a second, there's more to my life than just this, and I'm actually going to step into it full force and really claim my body, claim my pleasure, claim 
my space, claim my voice. It's it's a really powerful time for, for people right now. I couldn't agree more. And it's like, you know, you look at you look at the children of today who are so awake. Uh, you know, a lot of people don't like the millennials. And, you know, <laughs> I mean, whatever. I I have raised children who are now, stepchildren who are now in their 50s and their 40s and late 30s. And then I have um, a 31, 29, and a 20-year-old. And so I've been around the block just a little bit with seeing the difference. And, um, and you know, it's so interesting how you were talking about the Internet changing things because, you know, there wasn't an Internet when, you know, um, I raised these children, you know, for the most part. There wasn't there – weren't, there weren't phones in your hands, you know, that had every yeah. information that you could possibly want. I mean, when I think about the fact that it was 1994 when the Internet really started, yeah. I mean, think about that. That's 24 years ago. Mm-hmm. And look at how it's, 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 you know, anything you want to learn about, you go online. It used to be encyclopedias, you know, or going to the library. And, you know, if you didn't have access to that, you know, I mean, think about how it's revolutionized um, our society. So here we are. We now have social media of every form. We have news podcasts. We have these radio shows where people listen to it, you know, at all hours of the day and night. Information's available. So with with that in mind, um, where I'd like to go next is there's so many different things I want to talk to you about. I mean, I just would love to take <laughs> on. I, I know, I know. Like, okay, so I don't want to make it political I, because it's really not a political thing. But what happened in the White House just recently with we have we have people resigning because all of a sudden they're inappropriate past sexual violent behaviors becoming known and they're re- and they're resigning bef- you know in one case they resigned before it even became public public but he knew it was about to become public and then we have the other one saying oh no she just tripped and hit hit the table and or whatever story he made up but it's but, but it wasn't until the pictures from the ex-wives came out that anyone mentioned the lack of a security clearance so is this you know, and then everybody, you know, pointed fingers and no, 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 didn't know. Okay. So where do we go with this? Like as as people who want to make a change, it's not just with women, it's 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 a whole cultural thing. So yes. for part of this part of this, like, you know, you, you have totally reclaimed it. You've totally reframed it and you're helping all these women do that. But as a society, let's just say just the average person who's saying, what can I do to help change this? Mm-hmm. Where, what do you feel as a society? And I know this is like a question going in 10 directions. So whatever, whatever thread yes. you feel is relevant with the work you're doing and, and helping people right now. I think there's a, like you said, a multiple directions we can go. So I want to keep it really simple. What has happened with the rise of the Internet and accessibility and apps and, you know, just on and on, is that we ourselves have become commodities. People are commodities. Sexuality is a commodity. It's a currency that we we utilize. And what we need to remember is that that is not actually the truth. We might behave that way, but we're actually human beings. We are sexual beings. We're not a commodity. We're not a currency. And so part of sexual sovereignty invites us into having a a relationship with ourselves that's deeply respectful. And that obviously would then go out to another person. So the first place to start is just there with ourselves and to say, hey, wait a second. I'm not willing to bargain for love or sex anymore. 
I'm not willing to um, be quiet if I witness something that's inappropriate. I'm going to say something because it's all of our voices are very helpful. I, I recently spoke with a lawyer. So what can people do? Because people don't know what to do. And, for example, if you're followed in a parking lot, you can actually call the police in a non-emergency way and report kind of what the person looked like. And then it's on record. And if there's enough reports with the same description, it's really helpful to the police to find a person who's doing stuff like that. So as a community, we're now holding each other accountable. And um, you said about politicians, well, here's the thing that I'm seeing in the world is leaders are now being called into embodied leadership. That means they actually are being called to be more impeccable. They're being called to actually live the very thing they stand for. And the modeling of that, we cannot look to authority to model that for us because it's obvious that they're not. So the modeling of this begins with the individual. That's what's exciting, that you yourself right now, as the listener listening to this, how you choose to live your life right from this moment forward is modeling for everyone else. Will you use your voice? Will you take a stand for your own boundaries? Will you start to be curious about your body and your sensuality and lean in and, and determine for yourself that you, you are not a commodity and your sexuality definitely isn't and start to respect that and, and have conversations. What would we love? This is so important. What would we love? And we don't talk about it. We talk about everything we don't like. We're very clear on what we don't like. I'm really clear what people don't like. But what I'm not clear on is, well, what would we love then? Because I can tell you, living in a world where all men are castrated is not an option for me, even though that is an idea that's going around. And so what would I love? I would love to live in a world where I have such deep respect for myself. It naturally flows out. I have enough self-esteem and self-awareness that I can use my voice in healthy ways. So say in a work situation, someone's just even gently inappropriate and say, hey, that was inappropriate, but not in a way that's destructive, in a way that's just very clear and confident. That is not how I like to be spoken to or about. And start to ask for accountability. And we're going to be messy. This is the thing. This transitional period, there's no way to do it perfectly. We're going to be messy. We'll make mistakes. But if we can all learn and grow from those and keep going for what we love, I think that there's a lot of um, transformation that can happen on an individual level. And if individuals change, then society will change. You know, it's, um, you know, critical mass. You know, like when when I always love – Greg Braden's teaching, it's not just Greg, it's come from other people, but when he talks about how a scientific discovery will be discovered in three different parts of the world at the same time. And it's because there's this energy and consciousness that reach this critical mass with scientists working on the same things and possibly sharing cross discoveries. But either way, it's like all of a sudden, it's like connected. People are connected with this. And, you know, right now, I feel like the fact that millions of women marched and a lot of the other, there are so many other women who, who don't understand what that was about. I, and, and these are educated women. They just don't understand. And I think, you know, the, 
you know, the pussy hats and some of the other things made them feel very uncomfortable. School teachers were actually almost fired, and in some cases were fired, because they publicly demonstrated with the word, our vaginas are ours, leave them alone. You know, and like, you know, some of it was a little shocking, but it was also like, are you kidding me? Like, what, what is going on? And so we've touched on this briefly, and I want to take that, that in a different direction. I do, I do want to talk about, um, you know, the work that you're doing. I want to talk about the Daring Project. I want to talk about all that, but I do want to talk about with men. Like, are you, you're primarily working with women, yes? Yes. And my husband actually works with men. <laughs> okay, because I wondered. I thought, okay, because yep. I just felt like I thought she's tuned in to what's going on with men too. <laughs> so, so one yes. of the things, uh, yeah, that you, you know, one of the questions that was, um, you know, su- suggested um, here. I'm going to rephrase it. Okay, so one of the questions is, um, do you feel that men and their sexuality is um, innately, their, their libido is innately brutal. So that's one mm. question. But then the next question that I have with that is, okay, all these commercials on impotence, all these men, I mean, the, the money that is spent on men and their problems. We now have pictures, children seeing men and women in bathtubs on a beach talking about taking their blue pill and having sex when they plan it and it lasts forever. I mean, how many children are growing up now in this culture thinking all men have problems with erections? It's like they know what erectile dysfunction is when they're like children. Yes. And you know, it's interesting uh, when Viagra turned its attention to young men, it, um, the, it got a whole new industry. And here's what's happening with the young men, and we're talking in teenage years that are oh reliant on Viagra. So, so what's what going on? Is, <laughs> yes. So what's happening is, first of all, a culture where people are disassociated from their physicality, never mind sexuality, just your own body. This is a climate where this would happen. And then you put into it so many layers. It's very confusing to be a man right now because there is an intensity to having that much testosterone there is no initiation for young men where they're you know tested and and brought into like what does it mean to be a man what's your responsibility in the world as a man with this powerful body and this intense um potency and and passion and power how do we use this in 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 a way that serves the community and, you know, supports women and uh, children to feel safe and seen and provided for, et cetera, et cetera. We don't have those rituals anymore. What we're having is an industry that's selling young men very quickly with porn and, of course, this abuse of Viagra, which creates so much depression. There's so much depression with men. It, it's not easy. And then on top of that, we have, like, this – very righteous reaction to the masculine saying we need to castrate all men because, you know, they're inherently violent beings and all of these problems wouldn't have happened. And and I know a lot of men and they're very kind and they're embodied and they're fierce and they're powerful and they're respectful. So I can't say that that's true, that, uh, uh, you know, the male libido is inherently brutal. I've talked even with gay men about this because I, 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 sometimes um, speak in those communities 
And they felt really insulted. They're like, really? We could, you know, use a little bit more roar, actually, most of the time. And I've talked to other men who, you know, spent their life dimming their own masculinity out of fear of making women feel unsafe. And, and they're terrified right now. Like, what do we do? So I think it's very important to, uh, instead of making it about all men in a certain species, that we need to bring it back. It's like saying, suddenly blaming that all human beings are, you know, they they can commit murder. We should be terrified. Well, then who are we going to even want to walk down the street next to? So we have to be very careful with generalizations. And we also then need to be very careful about how we support the men that we do care for in our lives and have conversations with them. Um, So I don't believe that men's libidos are inherently brutal. And I think what's inherently brutal is the conditioning of young boys and young girls to be disassociated from their bodies and that they're only allowed to feel certain types of emotions and not others, and that we alienate them from their own um, intuitive selves, their felt selves, their instinctual selves. All of that alienation, I think, is far more brutal, and that leads to, on occasion, a person who acts out. And often when people act out, it's because there's either an addiction issue happening, which is usually because it comes from a a source of one kind of trauma or another, or literally a trauma that's happened, or they're modeling what they witnessed their father is doing or their uncle's doing. So if we want to change how men are, we need to right now engage in conversations that are not assuming the worst and asking and leaning in and, and hearing, and then also engaging with young boys and giving them the opportunity to anchor it was just like I did when I was a child. I had such great boundaries from mother and father. This is your body. No one should touch it, you know, et cetera, et cetera. These teachings that are so phenomenally impactful on the psyche of a young person. It's so important. And we, we devalue the importance of that. And, and you're right, you know, the amount of violence that we expose um, young people to at a very formative age and then, like you said, the other side of that is the impotent side <laughs> and having that well, be the norm. Yeah. I mean, it's almost like, you know, are are these drug companies planting the seed in men's minds and then they have the problems? You know, there's just so many things. I mean, a lot of a lot of people have said it's because, you know, the original birth control pills in the 60s were so high in hormones before they figured out they didn't have to make it that high. So a lot, I mean, there's just theories. You know, I hear everything, not everything, but you know what I mean? I hear a, yeah. I hear a lot that goes across my desk and because I've always been curious about sexuality and, you know, how to heal that when people have been wounded. Wounded and, and harmed, and how to empower them, which you know I love your work, yeah. and um, and I I think that it's it's you know so, so timely, you know, and I mean you know you study I, I've studied tantric, I've studied a lot of different paths, but but the main thing is this: I have seen people, women who are in their sixties, who were traumatized at age fifteen, and they're still talking about it. They yes. haven't moved past it. And that's where I'd like you to just share. I mean, I know, you know, you, you have totally transformed and you're helping others. But, I mean, with your work, if you would just share some of the miracles that you have. Or, or yes, you want to share, I, but, would yeah, to. The, I would love to. I would love to. Yeah, because I think, I think this is the part so many people 
what you described, you know, they dissociate and, you know, they describe it. It's like when they're going through the abuse, oftentimes they're there, but they've gone up above and they're looking down at it so that they're not really there, if you know what I mean. And there's like, and then, yeah. and then they live that way for the rest of their lives, never really knowing how to get back in. Mm. Yeah, that's, and, so I think, you know, the, the big part of the work first, number one, is to rebuild trust with one's own body because it's been broken. We feel betrayed by our body. And that's the primary thing that has to happen. And the reason I go body first is that we're so full of concepts. We are, we've mentalized sexuality when it's also a physical experience. It's also a body experience. And so all the talk therapy in the world cannot help transform cellular memory that's locked in the cells of the body. For that, we need a physical connected practice. So one of the beautiful things that I love to, to witness is just even a simple thing, like before we can even talk about sex and trauma and you know, orgasms and all these things, let's talk about body love. Let's talk about just actually laying of hands on your body and loving every single little section, especially the ones that you tend not to love. That's been amazing to watch because when a person just has this moment of asking, like just saying, I'm sorry to the part of the body that they've hated for so long and the tears are flowing, all that is, uh, it's a rebuild of trust. It's a rebuild of trust. So that's where we must start. The second piece that's very important that I found, and, it, and actually was revealed to me through my study when I did my dissertation, I thought that particular techniques were the, uh, the reason why people were transforming. So I was trying to find out which are the most powerful techniques that I could give women so they have a real transformation. And I was in for a shock because even the women who never practiced had positive, lasting transformation. So what does that tell us? It tells us that we are psychosexual beings. That means our mind, feeling, emotional nature is interwoven with our physicality. There's no separation. And when we introduce new ideas, new possibility, just that, like a paradigm shift in how we think of ourselves, that alone can already create so much transformation. So one of the ideas is that we're not broken, so we don't need to be fixed. Now imagine if you really took that on, and instead of spending all your life trying to fix yourself, you accepted that you weren't broken and you were curious what you needed. You obviously, there's, there's imbalances that need you know, our attention, whether it's a sleep deprivation or changing something to eat, but each of that's unique to the person. But just even the amount of energy and attention and psychological space that can be freed up from shifting our attention to perpetually fixing what's not broken to actually getting curious and going, what's the gift in this? What is the gift in this? What's hidden in my body? Where's, maybe it's just a sensation. Can I feel safe just like smelling a flower, for example? That is really, we can't underestimate the power of that. That one premise is really, really powerful. Another is that we are powerful. So here's what I don't like about the current feminine movement is that there's an underlying idea that all women are victims and all women are powerless. 
That's the idea behind it. And I feel insulted as a woman to, to, to feel that as an underlying premise. I would much rather be part of a movement that regards me as powerful and engages my creative ability to go, well, what, what should we create now together? So, so the trauma piece, uh, and I'll let you speak because there's so much I can say. So I'll just take a pause and then we'll come back. <laughs> go ahead. Okay, so the, the trauma piece, for those of us who are stuck, it's not your fault. I really want to emphasize this. We are in a woundology culture where we give you quite literally a badge with a label called victim of this and victim of that. And a lot of us feel righteous in that because that is a step in the healing process, but it's not the healing in its totality. So there is something to admit that a victimization experience has happened. We, we must admit it. We must say that. But then is it true is our whole identity locked into that experience? Or are we much more than that? And can we lean into what that is? That's the scary part of the healing. What if we did have a greatness that wanted to emerge? What if we did have a gift? And because we live in a culture that feels connected through our wounds, it's scary to take a stand. Well, I think that's why men are outside of that. Yeah. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but I think that that's why right now men are feeling very frightened because women are angry, women are speaking up, and women collectively as a unified force, is, it's pretty amazing. So I think, I, you know, I hear what you're saying, and um, and that's why I was saying, what can women do? Because all of us know mm-hmm. someone, you know, I mean... My mom told me stories before she died that I didn't know, but she waited until right before she died before she told me because she was embarrassed by those stories. And, um, you know, she had been harmed, and yet she went on to have a, 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 a good life. She didn't have a high trust level with men being um, uh, faithful and honest, and then she, um, because her thoughts were so much that way, um, she had problems, you know, with trusting, and then it, it, you know, what you focus on expands, et cetera. So for yeah. women, I mean, you know, you know what I'm saying. And so, you know, Absolutely. there's a book called Love, Love is Letting Go of Fear, and to me this, if every person on the planet, male or female, could get this, it's exactly what you're talking about. It's like, okay, he talks about we all, all of our lives are a story. It's like a movie. Imagine your life as a movie. And rarely, if ever, has there been a movie made where at the end of the day, after you've done, you know, the filming, you look at the rushes and you're like, oh, that's okay, but that lighting's not quite right in that scene. Or, oh, my goodness, <laughs> those words, you know. So you go in and what do you do? You edit it yeah. out, you reshoot it, and you splice it in. And and what Gerald Jampolsky, you know, he does the attitudinal healing. I just love his work. He said, you re, you redo your story and you splice in how you would have liked it to, to have been. So it's like, and that's what you're talking about yeah. in many ways is like, okay, somehow this experience happened. It, did you do it on purpose? No. Are you to blame for it? Give it up. You know, no. You were 20 years old. You were this innocent, vibrant young being, and you were brutally attacked. But did you yeah, ruin so the rest? Yeah. Yeah. I, so it's like. Complete your thoughts so I can jump in. Yeah, so it's but it's like you you somehow, you know, were able to defy, literally defy. And I love how you talk about you you have to almost defy and be rebellious against what people tell you. It's like 
that's part of the healing. Well, yes, because apathy is what's killing the world right now, being in apathy. Being defined by other people's ideals is also killing the world. So the only way that we can make real change happen is to be a little more daring, wake up, be a little more daring, and start to actually question, is that definition true for me? Is that actually true? I have women as young as 20 years old emailing me in states of utter panic because they do not feel viable anymore as women, that they're getting old because they've been told this or that. And, and I mean, sometimes it's so outrageous, I, I, I almost want to laugh, but then I realize this is a real pain. This is not funny. Right. So, right. so. You know, that apathy is coming out. I'm sorry. Go yeah. ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> no, no, you're, you're absolutely right. Like, so for me, one of the enemies is apathy. And, and another is, um, Obviously, like like I was saying earlier, like commodifying our bodies, commodifying even just who we are as, as people. I mean, some people I think are on apps and they're just swiping through all these people as if it's a food menu. These are human beings we're talking about. Um, so being a little daring, sexually sovereign people really do self-validate and self-define. So the beginning of this work, the beginning of the healing is also to really look at a definition creates reality. How we define ourselves, others, and the world ends up being the lens in which we experience it through. So it's very important to be um, curious about that. And you were asking about steps to do, like what can we do? A very easy thing is if someone needs to talk and you're willing to listen, it's not a place for therapy. It's just we all crave a deep listening so if we can listen to each other, not as victims, but as powerful people in a state of reclamation where we don't need to resolve the story, it just needs to be heard, really heard, and we can go, wow, that sucks, or shit, that was painful, you know, whatever we're saying, but we don't need to fix it. It right. doesn't need to be heard. And then from that, an invitation to rebuild the trust first with ourselves first with our body, with our sensuality, like what could we do there in the most simple form? How do you practice profound self-respect on a daily basis? And those remarkably ordinary things can be like massive tools and very powerful transformation. And then the last piece is to be that daring person, just a little bit, that what is in your heart, what you deeply yearn for, the fact that it's there makes it viable. Even if you have no idea how you're going to get it, it doesn't matter. The fact that it exists in your own heart and you can feel it, it's viable and it's worthy and and that it matters and let it matter for you because that's life, right? We we don't want to be so numb and and shut down and and tuned out that we can't feel our That's what our society is. Right. I mean, just take another pill. Just take another antidepressant. Just take another of this. Just, I mean, we have an alcohol yep. and drug problem. I mean, the the opioid uh, problem. I mean, it's all anything to not feel the pain or anything. It's self-medicating or doctors are prescribing it. And, you know, it's interesting. You know, I started off as a nurse and I just realized very quickly that that just was not my path on this planet. And then I, you know, I got into all this holistic stuff. But I admire both systems. I mean, there are times for both. Mm-hmm. But but yeah. but you can't 
you can't give your power away. You have to, you know, you have to reclaim. And I love your work with, you know, claim your sovereignty, claim who you are, get mm-hmm. to know yourself. Um, you know, okay, we're we're getting close to the end, so I want to give the some information out. You can go to <laughs> www.saidadesoleil. I want to say desoleil, but I know that's not. How do we pronounce it correctly? Well, that's correct, but actually it's an easier URL would just be Dare Your Desire because for the radio, my name is so difficult. So just Dare Your okay. Desire will take you to the same place, dareyourdesire.com, very easy. And for the ladies who want to be a little more daring, who want to be in a community that, that where you get to tell your story, where you matter, um, where we're looking to how do we boost our self-confidence, how do we – just even understand what would we love. A lot of us don't even know what we want in life. So that community is called The Daring Project, so thedaringproject.com. And a lot of amazing things are happening there with women literally from all over the world. So it's, it's a very dynamic, diverse group of women. Okay, and I cannot, I, I, you know, I haven't read your books yet, but, you know, your publicist told me about them, but um, The Emergence of the Sensual Woman, Awaking Our uh, our Erotic Innocence is on Amazon, and The Illustrious Jade Egg is a Kindle book, and then you have another new book. We just have a couple minutes. Can you give us a sneak peek into your new Ooh. book on Desire? Yes, yeah, so it's I love on the Desire, name. <laughs> and I know, right? It's, well, Desire is right yeah. now being vilified that it's, you know, it's at the problem of all things and it's been vilified for a long time. And so what I'm daring to do in this little tiny pocketbook is to say desire, our inherent desire is an emergent force, a compass that we can all really trust and follow and create a life that's very fulfilling. And here's what happens when that gets hijacked and here's what to do about that and how to be a little bit more daring. So it's, it's an incredible little journey. Um, I share a lot of intimate stories, which is new for me, uh, but I think it's good. It, it creates connection. It makes it real. And it's an invitation to really understand that if we keep vilifying desire, we're actually moving further and further away from the one thing that could actually transform our lives, which is actually the deepest yearning in our heart. It's called Passion and Desire. Yes. And it's like, <laughs> you know, and, it, and it's funny, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm quite a bit older than you. I'm, I'm turning 63 this year. And it's like, as I'm getting older, I'm getting younger. It's like, you know, and, and I, I just wrote about this, how sometimes when you listen to music that you listen to when you were younger, all of a sudden you're young. You, you listen to that music yes. and, and you've seen it with older people. All, all of a sudden, they're tap dancing, and they're like these people who are in wheelchairs, not moving, and then they hear this music, Glenn Miller or something, and they're like, do 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 do, and you can see them come alive, come yeah, alive. It's beautiful. Oh my goodness, Saida, thank you so much. Thank you for the work you're doing. Thank you for um, helping so many people that are coming across your path, and may more people come across your path. And I'm happy that you are so happily married, and you, the two of you, are doing this work and just just please know and listeners there's a wonderful article in the february issue just go to spiritseeker.com click on the cover and a wonderful article um by saida in this issue and then you know i've given you all the information for her websites and saida thank you so much for being my guest and um i just from my heart to yours you know desire yeah let's go for it yeah thank you so much it's been an absolute pleasure 
Okay, mine too. Okay, thanks so much. And listeners, we'll be back on the air next week. Have a fabulous week. Namaste.